Hi, Michael. Good to have you on the show. Thanks. So, um, for everyone who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I am the host and producer of two podcasts. One is an independent show called Future Fossils, which uh, focuses on uh, science, philosophy, you know, f futurist speculation, um, visionary art, and uh, you know, evolutionary theory. And uh, the other is for the Santa Fe Institute, where I manage social media. Uh, that podcast complexity is uh, a an interview series with uh, world leading complex systems scientists and uh, you know explores you know deep general principles underlying you know the patterns of our world. I uh, for the last 15 years or so have also been a performing musician and artist uh, touring. North America and uh, a little bit of Australia and a little bit of Europe, less than I'd like. Um, painted at uh, concerts and music festivals professionally for 11 years uh, during that time. Uh, have worked as a managing editor for a number of web publications, um, focusing mostly on like art and philosophy. And uh, yeah, I live here in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the United States. And I am uh, very, very interested broadly, if, if this isn't already evident, uh, interested very broadly in uh, the collapse of our categories in the, as, our, as our society scales to planet size and, uh, you know, the way that uh, art, science, philosophy, uh, spiritual practice and uh, social life, you know, governance and um, so on are, are all starting to reflect each other um, and, and uh, define each other in new ways that, you know, like that our, our siloed disciplines are no longer useful uh, as a sort of discrete modes of knowing, but that we, that new modes of knowing that, that, uh, integrate and uh, synthesize these these different disciplines are uh, seemingly taking a, a priority that they didn't in the past. So, you know, l really, really interested in the future of the uh, human technology evolutionary relationship, um, what new media will mean for the, uh, you know, the sense of what it is to be a human being and what it is to live with one another in society you know uh what it what it will mean to to be a self in another 50 or 100 years um how how our relationships with with our tools will change um you know, wh where we draw the line around the self you know what is and is not the self uh and looking at all of this through a deep time lens you know through an a, a, a paleontological or evolutionary biology kind of lens looking at how the profound and uh, rapid transformations that we're undergoing as a planet right now are not uh, completely unprecedented you know that there are there are a lot of um, a lot of clues suggesting that uh, what we're living through as a species right now is sort of 
just the latest iteration of this sort of this ongoing process, you know, the evolution of intelligence on our planet. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, could you, please, <laughs> could you please share with us the story behind like how you got involved in philosophy, art, music, and so on and so forth? Yeah, I, I went to school to uh, study vertebrate paleontology. I was working as a... What's that? Uh, um, the, the history of, of vertebrate life in the fossil record. You know, so this is, uh, for most people in this discipline, this means like, you know, dinosaurs or prehistoric mm, okay. mammals. Um, I was working on a, a paleontological field crew in Wyoming for uh, every summer as a teenager and was really committed to uh, the, you know, the reconstruction of the, the ancient world, like age of dinosaurs. Um, but then when I was in college, I found, uh, a, a, you know, a number of philosophical writers um kind of premiere among them at the time was uh, Ken Wilber, who uh, mm. I had I, I had a problem with because he was profoundly misrepresenting evolutionary biology in his work. But I found so much of his other his other uh, writing and insight to be hugely valuable. And so I tried. I've to talked tr to him two weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. He's, yeah, I had him on the show. Cool. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's a he's an interesting guy. Um And I really appreciate, you know, and I, I think I, I, you know, I reflect in my thinking uh, and my, my practice of these things. Uh, a lot of this, this uh, effort that I inherited from him to try and understand how we're going to r restore the unity and coherence of human knowledge and practice uh, in, in a, you know, postmodern or post-postmodern era um, but like I said, you know, he was saying some things about um, the sciences that were just not only uh, patently wrong, but made it impossible for me to apply his work uh, with it. Uh, like, you know, that, that evolution cannot explain uh, the evolutionary theory cannot explain the origin of the wing, for example, or that that in order for a new mutation to uh, take its root in a, a lineage of organisms that it would have to appear in somehow magically in both mother and father of a breeding pair. Like, you know, he did, he did some of his, uh, his graduate work in uh, biochemistry and so on. And so just assumed that he knew what he was talking about. It was very strange. Um, he, I, I, you know, I, I worked with him for a while and, uh, had, you know, had been to his house And saw uh, works like Richard Dawkins' Climbing Mount Improbable on his bookshelf in his rather extensive library. Um, Dawkins' book is a, is a, you know, among other things, a, a fantastic argument for the the classic sort of intelligent design uh, argument for uh, a, a irreducible complexity as an argument against evolution by natural selection, specifically that the uh, you know a structure as complex as the eye could not have emerged through gradual um, mutation-based innovations. And that's just completely wrong and has been known to be wrong for decades. And so I was in this bizarre position where I really wanted to bring his brilliance and his insights into the, the academic uh, study of 
the evolution of intelligence and specifically, you know, answering this question of whether we could create a rigorous ar argument for a, a kind of telos or a direction in evolution. Um, specifically, you know, is the, is the world becoming more and more complex? Uh, but when I, when I tried to make the bridge, it was very much like being the child of divorce, you know, and like the two, the two, the two parents refused to listen to one another, you know, like Ken refused to listen to what evolutionary biologists actually had to say about the matter and evolutionary biologists that I tried to introduce to his work threw his book in the trash because they were so you know, so convinced that someone who so profoundly misunderstood what they were saying had anything worth listening to. So I, um, I tried to study, uh, you know, a, a, you know, Ken's big deal, as I, I'm sure you discussed is, uh, you know, what he calls like a methodological pluralism, you know, an attempt to understand how, uh, science, philosophy, psychology, hermeneutics, systems, thinking, etc., all, uh, originate within a sort of, you know, prototypical mode of inquiry and are, um, you know, can be reunited, uh, in the postmodern, you know, in a, in a, in a sense, you know, in a way that will, uh, honor the unique insights of every domain of knowledge, but, uh, doesn't, you know, attempt to reduce, for example, mind to matter or vice versa, you know, that, that understands that both of these things are, you know, that all of these different perspectives are uh, facets of some sort of transcendent phenomenon and that we can't really access uh, the thing itself except through these these sort of partial modalities. And so, you know, I, I went and I studied this at, at uh, John F. Kennedy University uh, in their inaugural integral theory cohort in 2007 under uh, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, who uh, is, you know, was a, another student of Ken's and uh, acknowledged some of the the limitations of Ken's thinking about this stuff and acknowledged that the, the field of integral theory had to move beyond its sort of uh, fascination with this char single charismatic individual you know, and it had to move beyond a, you know, an adherence to his authority on these matters and had to really grow and become a worldwide uh, community of practitioners and of minds. And I was really inspired by that. But um, the the program was uh, kind of ahead of its time. It was very new. And so uh, I was unable to complete my graduate education uh you know, due to like funding related problems, basically. Um, and was at the time working as a scientific illustrator, uh, doing like field guides and, and species descriptions for the University of Kansas, as well as a couple other museums and, and uh, research institutes. And living in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. And so it felt like a fairly natural transition for me, um, I was working, uh, doing live uh, sound engineering for music at the time and performing music and seeing a lot of concerts that uh, involved some sort of live physical, I mean, live uh, visual artist component. Um, 
at the time, you know, I think the the most inspiring instance I'd seen was uh, Chris Davidson pa- painting at, at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado for Sound Tribe Sector Nine, and just like putting this extraordinary uh, painting together, you know, it, during the concert, and was really inspired to to try and uh, transpose my scientific illustration work to uh, fine art, and and to do these this uh this stuff live during musical events and at the same time i was also working for a uh a spotify also ran called igly that was working um this is before spotify and they were trying to uh create a a uh, a universal streaming music platform and social network and i was working on a, a team of bloggers uh investigating the future of music technology and so, you know, I, I, this is the sort of the stew of, of uh, thoughts that I was having about the relationship between human creativity and human technological innovation and um, the, the notion that, you know, the, the art is uh, as much about the process as it is about the product that, you know, that the, 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 my work as an artist, both as a, as, as a visual artist and a musical artist uh, came to reflect the sort of evolutionary thinking of of complex systems emerging out of these uh, these uh, stigmergic interactions. You know that that uh, things would come together, uh, and the the you know these new more complex forms would emerge out of the interference patterns uh, between the you know the layers of their self construction. And so, at any rate, you know I, I you know was um, really, you know, disappointed to have sort of lost my, my course in academia. Um, but at the same time, really delighted to find this, this new movement of visionary artists and, uh, so-called transformational festivals that was, you know, taking root, uh, in the United States around that time and ended up pursuing, uh, you know, a career in that space primarily for, the next, uh, you know, 10 or so years. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, I went from being sort of the, the sole artist among scientists to being the sole scientist among artists in a weird way and, and never felt completely at home in, in, uh, the university or in, uh, festival culture. But, um, you know, I think that that's, that's just indicative of the fact that we are still at this very early phase of this, this new Renaissance, you know, and that it's that our institutional structures don't really support the kind of thinking that is required uh, now um, in order to make sense of the complexity of this phase that we're, we're moving through. And um, could you please also tell us like, um, how did you get started with your podcast? Because I think most people know you for your writing and your podcast. So, yeah, um, Future Fossil started in 2016, and it started um, basically by popular demand. Because I was, you know, not only painting and performing music at festivals, but I was also giving talks, um, and people really just encouraged me to take the mic more frequently, and you know. Frankly, I was also, um, I love being a painter, but I didn't love 
being a painter professionally. Um, you know, the artists are in, at least in, a, in American festival culture are really uh, considered, you know, as an afterthought or as sort of a second class citizen. You know, we don't really, we don't really measure what actually makes people come to festivals. You know, uh, festival producers tend to uh, reduce everything uh, dimensionally to who are the headlining acts that are going to get people out and, and not paying attention to the entire ecosystem of creativity that has emerged in, in, into these spaces and the value that that has created for, for festival goers. And so um, financially unsupported, um, generally disregarded. And so it was really rare for me to find uh, organizers that understood the impact that I was having and people like me were having um, on, on the, the people in these spaces, on the culture itself, and um, on the desirability of these events. And so uh, it just was, you know, like the, it, it was ultimately the decision, uh, you know, do I want to continue barking up this tree? Like, do I, do I want to continue knocking on this door over and over and trying to assert my, my value, my worth to people that seem, you know, kind of persistent in their refusal to understand? Um, or do I want to get back to this life of, uh, you know, intellectual, inquiry and discovery and curiosity and take a more active role in facilitating the kind of conversations that I was having with people at the easel at festivals, you know, that I was, I was getting into these amazing discussions that were like repeatedly, I was getting feedback from, from people after these events that, you know, that I had changed their minds about something in a profound and, and lasting way that, that they, you know, that they had been inspired to go back to school or to, to quit their job and start a new a vocation or, uh, you know, and it seemed that my, you know, my impact was so far greater in conversation than it was through the visual arts where, you know, it's the, the signal to noise ratio, uh, of being, you know, one creator among dozens at this, like this, uh, spe spectacle of light and color and sound, um, you know, that, that, that seemed more important at the time. And so my friend, uh, Evan Snyder and I, uh, he was the original co-host of Future Fossils, and so we launched this uh, at Moogfest, where I was giving a talk in uh, 2016. And he very quickly decided to leave the show and pursue other things. But uh, I had this 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 program, and so I had all these amazing people. Uh, you know, in my life that, you know, other authors and, and thinkers that were really encouraging of this course that I was taking. And so it's, uh, you know, that, that became the, the thing really. And, um, you and know, by I the way, to make I, art and music, but you know, yeah. And, and by the way, I think this is like a great takeaway for everyone who is listening to this right now, because um, in this day and age, you can really bypass all those gatekeepers. You can self-publish your book. You can content online through uh, podcasting, broadcasting and all those different things. And um, we don't have to rely on those gatekeepers. So True. However, it is also the case that um, precisely because... 
the barrier to entry has become so low, it has become that much more, you know, proportionally more difficult for people to find their audiences uh, amidst the the cacophony of of similar offerings, you know. Yeah, and so, you know, I think that you know the um, the profuse abundance of of uh, options for people now is such that it is vastly more difficult to break through um, the noise. Yeah, to break through the noise and to reach the people that you want to reach compared to, you know, say 10 years ago. Yeah. And and so, you know, in a way the gatekeepers really haven't gone away. Um they have just changed. You know, the, the gatekeepers now are the curators of the you know the taste you know the people writing the algorithms that we all have to you know try and game they're the people who are you know the social media influencers whose massive audiences uh, are are you know swayed one way or the other by their their taste making pronouncements and <laughs> you know and and also of course by you know the um, the socioeconomic and and uh, you know financial and you know technological incumbents um you know for example you know there's this thing with the superstar effect uh that as the as the as an audience moves from a local to a global audience then you're competing against the world's best in in whatever category and so you know now um we're we're moving out of a phase where at once it was just all like only rock stars right in the music sphere and then uh but there was there were even then sort of more opportunities for local musicians to make a local living Hmm. and now you know it's it's getting much much easier for restaurants and cafes to just throw up a spotify playlist um and the priority on live music has has definitely shifted in that kind of a setting um the you know and now it's it's also the case that uh, you know, with like the Whitney Houston hologram tour, you know, that even dead celebrities, the likenesses <laughs> of dead, dead Tupac celebrities. And, yeah. yeah. That these people, these <laughs> people have passed and yet they are still dominating the, uh, and are going to well, come yeah. to dominate the live music environment where it's no longer about, you know, it went, you know, it went from live music to DJs and then it went from, it's going now from DJs to artificial intelligence and resurrected dead celebrities. So, you know, the, the, I don't know that it's actually gotten easier for someone, um, you know, on a, like a per capita basis to make a career. Like certainly there are more options now for that as ever, but I'm not sure that, um, overall it's any simpler or more straightforward. Um, you know, certainly, yes, it's, it's easier to take the initiative um, it's easier to pursue uh, a, a creative career without someone else's approval, um, but it, it doesn't require any less work in terms of Very good uh, point, promotion and so on. You know. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of people know you for your blogging, and um, I, you've published an article a couple of weeks ago. Um, you don't uh, you don't have to uh, optimize your life. So um, I think this is a good one. So uh, oh, yeah, please speak to that. Yeah, um, this is an older piece that 
that sat in the folder for a while um, before it came out. And so I'm not, um, I think this, this piece is a kind of a clickbait piece. Actually, if I ever wrote one, this is the one that I would consider to be kind of oversimplified in its, in its uh, argument. But the, the argument nonetheless is that there, that there's an enormous amount of, of emphasis being given these days to this notion of uh, self-optimization, you know, yeah. that, that we live in a world that is accelerating and urgent and uh, intense and precarious, turbulent. Um, and so all of us are sort of aware that we are, uh, you know, in, to use a, 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 you know, this term, the, like the hill climbing algorithm, you know, that evolution is um, this sort of, uh, you know, process by which an organism attempts to fit, uh, adapt to and fit its environment, but the environment is constantly changing. And so even as you try to move up to your, your local peak of fitness, like the, what is possible given the anatomy that you have, given the, the life history that you have, um, that landscape is always shifting and new bridges and, you know, new opportunities come and go and so on. So at any rate, the, you know, the idea that, um, you know, for example, uh, my friend Aubrey Marcus, who runs on it.com, you know, this, is a you know, health Very big brand. Yeah. It's a, it's an awesome company. It's, it's, it's amazing, you know, workout equipment and dietary supplements and, uh, you know, brain training stuff and, you know, really empowering course materials. Um, but this notion of like a, a total human optimization. Um, but you know, I think his is one of maybe the only, the only examples that I really admire in terms of, um, it's not, you know, when we talk about optimizing your life, what we're talking about is, um, optimizing according to a model of the world that you are holding. And the model itself is an evolutionary product. The model itself is not a perfect reflection of reality as it is. So, you know, what in, do you mean by that? Could you please? Unpack yeah. It? So, yeah. So this is, you know, for example, um, you know, if you happen to be, um, you know, a, a deeply religious person, then you might attempt to optimize your life according to the teachings of your yeah. sacred text. You know, the, the sacred text says this is a really crude example, but the sacred text says, you know, honor your father and your mother. Okay, so if you know, they, then you end up with these, you know, the ten the ten commandments produced thousands of years of of questioning about, you know, am I doing it right? You know, mm. am I being a good son? You know, <laughs> am I being a good am, am I being a good member of my community? And so they're like, you know, the ten commandments give you ten points uh, of optimization, you know, like, and some of them are easy, like don't steal. Okay. So like if, as Got long it. as I'm not <laughs> doing that, but then you get into these, you know, but then like, as the world gets more and more complicated, um, you know, this, this question of like, don't steal. Well, it's like, well, don't steal according to which legal system, you know, like don't steal according to what notion of property am I holding? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are multiple competing and, uh, you know, partially or non-overlapping definitions of of property in this world now. And so the notion of theft, you know, like Warner Brothers defended their 
uh, erroneous claim to copyright for the song Happy Birthday for over a century simply because they had greater legal power to do so. You know, they were able to lawyer up better than anyone else who tried to argue that that uh, Happy Birthday belonged in the in the public domain. You know, and so at at you know, is it is it really is it theft to steal a song that you get into these like letter and spirit yeah. of the law kind of things, right? And so, like, similarly, um, you know, there is uh, I read, you know, I, I love this this phrase, nutrition science whiplash that um, that, you know, the the science, which is so highly politicized on the health benefits or detriments of red meat or of coffee or of, you know, whatever, you know, saturated fats um that over the course of our lifetimes, these things have gone completely diametrically across the table in terms of what is or is not good for you. True. So, <laughs> like, you, know, like, like, you can't talk about those things nowadays, I would probably say. so. <laughs> right. So it's, it's impossible in on some sense, you know, like uh, what I would call an epistemic humility, you know, a humility about what it is that we think we know um, requires us to accept the fact that much of what we know, in fact, there was a great uh, TEDx talk, I think, about this uh, called most of what I think it was like most of what, you know, is wrong or like nearly everything, you know, is wrong. Um, just looking over the history of like what the scientific consensus was 500 years ago about at this particular thing and how ridiculous that seems to us today. For you instance, know? trans fats, like For people instance, trans fats. They, they're like, quote unquote, healthy or they aren't bad at all and nowadays like <laughs> they are terrible for your health like i think everybody yeah so you know similarly um you know one of my favorite uh like sawhorses about you know this kind of a thing is you know the notion that nearly everyone believes in this day and age um you know that the the sciences have really really locked down on the statement that time flows in, you know, from the past to the future. Hmm. And yet, you know, uh, a, a huge amount of the evidence coming out of quantum physics, you know, we, uh, John Wheeler's delayed choice experiment is a fabulous example. The, uh, the highly contentious uh, findings of the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab that, you know, d did, you know, deeply metastatistically robust work over 27 years um, the, uh, you know, Daryl Bem's feeling the future psychology experiments. Um, a lot of this work suggests, um, or, you know, also, um, you know, I Ingo Swan's work with the, you know, the, the deep state in, in, in the U S mm -hmm. and, and military yeah. experiments, um, you know, that, um, uh, you know, Charles Tart and all these people have been working on stuff that, uh, suggests that that the brain has some access to its own future states that you know there's there is what i would consider at this point now remarkably ro robust evidence that some that the future in some sense already exists and that we have limited access to it because the nature of information is that um if we are receiving uh, information about a future state of a system, then it will appear as noise unless we're able to anchor it in some kind of existing current 
associative framework. So if you have a dream about the future and it doesn't make sense until you've actually lived out that dream and then you can look back on it. But at that point, you know, you've already discarded the data of the original dream itself as noise. It didn't seem relevant to write down because it made no sense to you. And so, you know, um, I have a, I had a great conversation with uh, author Eric Wargo about this on future fossils episode 117, because, you know, his book time loops really gets into the argument for this stuff in a, in a, I think a really uh, rigorous way. But, um, there, you know, there are uh, social reasons, there are economic reasons, and there are psychological reasons that people hold on to, um, even even um, in you know disciplines that are committed to an unflinching engagement with the truth and a willingness to revise one's understanding. Um, this notion that that there is no future yet, that information flows on, in one way through time, which we already know is, is, you know, completely nonsense, you know, not just from quantum theory, but also from relativity theory, you know, that there is no single present and that things in different inertial references are, um, in different, uh, relationships to, to various futures and presents and pasts. So yet we cling on to this thing. And so the point is that simply that's like one example where it's like, if you're, if you're, if if you're trying to optimize your life according to, uh, you know, the world that you think you understand, you're almost certainly optimizing for the wrong thing. And like the, you just can't. Um, and and by know, the way, I love that you always put, um, um, you've always wrote in your article, like, uh, optimization in quotation marks. So, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Like certainly, you know, if, if, we, if, we, if, and, yeah, and so. like if we approach this with humility, right. Um, you know, that actually productivity is a really great example of this, you know, to make this a little bit more concrete and accessible for people. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you are trying to maximize or like optimize your productivity, uh, for like a toothpick factory, then you're only looking at the, the, you know, how many toothpicks can you create? You're not necessarily looking and you're probably, you know, talking about like quarterly or annual reports for your business. What you're not doing is looking at whether your toothpick factory is destroying the forests that produces the so-called ecosystem services like clean air and water that your business depends on. And so, like, you know, the, the issue of economic externality and the fact that, you know, in some sense, it is true that that all profit is theft um, from a a more complete, you know, a, a system more completely understood uh, in which there are no externalities in which, you know, you recognize yourself as part of a a, a web of mutual causation in which everything you do is going to feedback on you sooner or later or on your descendants or on a, you know, a, that your company in the future or, or so on. And so, you know, there's this, ultimately there's this issue with optimization that is about, um, the time horizon that you're taking to make your decisions, you know, how far out, how many degrees out are you thinking in the network? Um, you know, are you optimizing for yourself for today? Because that might not work, you know, like a, a kid that wants a, a candy bar is trying to optimize for what they want right now and not necessarily thinking about, yeah. you know, the, the effects that that candy bar is going to have on, on them long term and so on. And so, you know, we're really in a bind as human beings because um, 
we can like it it's I think that article goes a little too far in saying that you can't optimize. That's not exactly the case. It's that we can optimize, but we're always optimizing to a like you know a local and temporally limited understanding of of reality based on a model that is almost certainly deeply flawed and that therefore there needs to be a completely I would argue for a completely different stance with respect to, um, you know, what it, what it means to live well. You know, I think that, you know, there's, there's a way to like to think about sobriety. I gave a couple of talks, um, a few, you know, several years ago on trying to transform the notion of sobriety because each of us are made out of psychoactive chemicals, you know, like you're, you're like Salvador Dali says, you know, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. You know, you're literally made out of of mind-altering compounds, right? So, what is sobriety in this sort of complex systems sense? Um, and you know, my my uh, suggestion is that we transform sobriety from a, a you know a really limited kind of model. So this is a great example. Like if you're trying to optimize for sobriety, right? Mm. Well. <laughs> Do you not count the coffee that you had in the morning? Do you not do you <laughs> yeah. not count the chocolate? Do you not count the news that you consume? Do you not count the endorphins released in your body during exercise? Yeah. Do you not count the you know the, the chemicals? <laughs> yeah, all of like everything you do is changing your state of consciousness. Yeah. So so Good rather point. than rather than look at it in terms of this sort of you know primitive uh, you know puritanical hygiene oriented sense of sobriety. It makes sense to to recognize yourself as an open system in constant transformation and to regard sobriety as a measure of the the degree to which you are able to attend to the intelligence of your extended body, meaning, you know, the degree to which you are capable of listening to your hunches, you know, like that you get a bad feeling about something or a good feeling or that you feel like you've met someone before or that, you know, that you, you realize that you're running too hard and you need to slow down or that, you know, that there, that you're listening to the, not only the intelligence of your flesh, you know, like the, the, not just the brain, but the entire nervous system, but then extend that beyond that into what, you know, cyberneticist Gregory Bateson, you know, talked about the mind at large, which is that cognition is something that happens in the relational interactions between the, the self and its environment. And so this expanded notion of identity, which now and now in our time includes, you know, the way that we extend our cognitive processes into our Internet connected devices, um, the way that we think alongside uh, machine intelligences. You know, we think in conjunction with one another socially, you know, we think with our bodies, you know, they found that. You know, people have a harder time completing math problems in their head if they cannot move their hands like that. You know, like that if you can just sit there and yeah. think if you can move your body while you're thinking, you get more you get you think better. And so, you know, sobriety, <laughs> I think, in that sense, has to be rekeyed uh, to be uh, not just, um, you know, am I drunk or whatever, but, you know, to what degree am I am I really tuning into? Am I attending to? the complete mind that I, to which I have access, you know, and this is a metabolic issue. So really it's like, um, you know, the, the amount of attention that we're capable of paying has to do with the, 
the quality or the the integrity of our minds. And so, you know, just as a as an example, um, I think that there's you know there's a way to argue from this perspective that uh, given recent research uh, in in London and Johns Hopkins and elsewhere into um, the influences of psychedelics on the brain, that we know now that that uh, certain psychedelic compounds increase functional connectivity between brain regions, that they actually, um, you know, that normally different parts of your brain are inhibiting messages from other, you know, the other parts of your brain, and that a lot of the profound, uh, like, leaps of insight that have occurred to people, you know, like, like Kerry Mullis, the Nobel Prize winning inventor of the DNA polymerase chain reaction, um, like the structure of DNA itself, um, you know, uh, Crick and Watson and, and Franklin, um, d- discovered that, that, um, a lot of these, you know, profound insights came from, um, either psychedelics or from psychedelic like states, uh, in hypnagogia or hypnopompia or, or, uh, rapid eye motion dreaming that, you know, where the brain is more functionally interconnected within itself. And so it's actually not ig- actively ignoring insights from one part of your mind uh, to another part of your mind. And so there's a strong sense in which um, certain uh, n- what we would consider non-ordinary or altered states of consciousness are actually more sober than other states. Um, you know, that that uh, you, you know, so, so in, in this sense, it's just like, so what are you really trying to, what are you, what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for your ability to focus? Um, in which case, no, probably those states are not as, as useful, uh, or, you know, practical, uh, they're, they're certainly energetic, metabolically intensive, you know, the brain consumes a, a prodigious amount of sugar, um, under these kind of states, but like, you know, are you optimizing for creative insight, you know? And so you really have to get clear. This is the sort of the, the, the ultimate takeaway is not, I'm optimizing my life, but I'm optimizing my life for what? You know, and according to what model of reality, and this gets back to the Ken Wilber and integral theory stuff, you know, that it's like, you know, you can't, Ken made a great point, uh, you know, about, you can't make a statement about the world. You can't just say the world is this way, the ontological, the what you also have to include the methodological, the how, how did you come to this knowledge? Are you, are you using an agent based simulation? Are you using, are you meditating and like allowing images to appear to you? You know, how you, how you acquire the knowledge, the, um, the mode of inquiry, you know, to, to get into like a, like Bruno Latour's philosophy of science matters enormously into like the kind of data that is disclosed and the kind of validity claims you're capable of making. And then also the, your ability to interpret that is dependent on the the epistemic, you know, who, where you are developmentally as a human being and where you are uh, culturally and, and sort of psychologically, philosophically in terms of your conditioned beliefs, the language that you're living in, um, you know, where, you know, the state of consciousness that you're currently inhabiting. And so, you know, I, I, I'm really uh, appreciative of, and that article came out of that appreciation of, of Ken's work and, and Sean Hargens and other people who have developed this, this way of thinking about how, um, you know, that, that we, we may not be able to make absolute universal claims about reality, but we can make claims that are broadly applicable to most people at most times. 
we can make claims that are broadly applicable um, beyond this, you know, beyond the sort of immediate framing and push into, you know, um, I'm really excited, for example, about, you know, the the growing scientific inquiry and interest into non-human forms of intelligence, dolphins, corvids, elephants, the wood wide web and like the forest itself and how, you know, plants appear to be, you know, com- computing and cognizing in, in ways that are really, you know, alien to us, um, but are nonetheless, you know, forms of intelligence on this planet. And that it's possible that we may be able to, um, as we as we learn to to know these sort of non-human forms of intelligence more intimately, that we may be able to make statements about the world that are true for humans and dolphins, that dolphins would agree with, you know. And this sounds this still sounds like crazy, kind of, um, you know, because of our cultural conditioning. But it's certainly better than trying to um, push a you know a single really really limited understanding uh onto a world that that were you simply to ask would not agree with you you know and so this question of you know um uh our ability to deceive ourselves about what our own future selves will want for example in order you know that that there is this tension between you know what i want now and what i think will be good for me in the long term um that the more that we are able to uh, extend the time horizon to attend to uh, a, a deeper history and a deeper potential future that um, we make wiser decisions this way. And in fact, really, this is where like the, the definition of wisdom meets this sort of complex systems definition of sobriety, you know, that, um, that it's, it is about being able to take the, this broader perspective that is more deeply informed, more broadly informed. Um, so, yeah. And, and I also think that a big issue is that um, a lot of people on social media with huge followings and they tell us how to think, what to eat, how to live, what is good for us, what we should do, what we have to do, what businesses we should start and so on and so forth. And a lot of people are looking up to them and instead of thinking for themselves what they want out of life, they are just adopting the quote-unquote made-up rules by others. And uh, I think this is also like a big issue on this whole topic on optimization. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's another instance uh, where, you know, where do you place the authority, yeah. right? Like how much, how, how much complexity are you capable of of managing as an individual. Um, you know, the, like, for example, um, you know, I tend to, I tend to look at religious fundamentalism, rationalist, modern science, and then this sort of emergent, um, postmodern scientific multi-methodological inquiry as three stages along a trajectory where the, the admissible data the so-called sacred text of your reality um, is bound, limited by your ability to uh, handle the ambiguity and the complexity of that data, and your ability to to like hold in your mind a uh, a model adequately multidimensional enough to to actually make use of it. So, you know, the sacred text, say of 
of like the Quran or of the Bible. Um, this is, you know, a, a uh, painfully insufficient encoding of this, but it worked for as long as you never encountered another culture. You never tried to have a conversation with another species. Um, you never probed into the subatomic nature of reality, you know, and, and as we extended our, our ability to perceive sense and, and sort of, uh, integrate information, then it moved to, you know, scientific modernity, which says, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, ex- we're not going to rely on this external text, uh, this external authority with, you know, with this, this one book, but we're going to look at the five senses and anything that you can confirm that can be confirmed by someone else. But there's still within that, this implicit, um, external authority that, you know, like the, the, Basically, that you know, the Church of Science, that scientific experts, um, that you know, this is something that science is in conflict with itself about. That um, because it, you know, now the, you know, there's so much information and so many different special specializations that nobody can really be a Renaissance man, Renaissance person in the way that we were 500 years ago. You know, it's it, you. You very quickly will realize that you can't learn everything that there, there that human beings know, and so we're we're back where we started at relying on people who uh, we just sort of have to tacitly assume know better than we do. You know, like most of most of what really matters in in the cutting edge of science now is not something that you can depend upon your five senses and a priori logic to understand. And in fact, even the notion that there are only five senses is deeply questionable, you know? And so there's, there are each, each phase has its own sort of built in blind spots, um, based, you know, that are built in again to like how adequate the model needs to be of reality at any given time. And so, you know, right now we live in a world that's, that is, complex and uh under such rapid transformation that the the way that we practiced science 200 years ago is no longer sufficient and you know we're, we're really butting up against a, a system where you know the for the last hundred years or so we've really had to deeply question what we mean by objective truth you know so i mean this is you know this this question of um to what degree am I willing to provisionally, hypothetically, uh, grant authority to an external individual or institution because I don't have time to look into it for myself. I don't have the bandwidth mm. to to actually pursue this thing. you know. And this is why we live in a world of rampant conspiracy theory because none of us have time to actually interrogate every claim that we encounter uh, you know, in, in media to the the extent that we we have managed to personally verify for ourselves whether or not you know 9/11 was an inside job or whatever you know like we can rely on experts but in in you know the more complex the 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 topic begin becomes um, the more inadequate even the experts are in answering these questions and so you get into these really really messy uh areas climate the, change for instance right climate right. change is Nobody a great example agree on anything <laughs> well i mean you know there's there's you know overall there i would say there is really large consensus about 
the broad brushes of climate change, but you know, like, you know, areas where you have people saying that the influence of, you know, solar magnetic cycles on the climate has been, you know, uh, deeply, um, underestimated, for example, you know, I don't think anyone's disagreeing at this point that's, that something is happening, but we, you know, when you get into the underlying mechanisms, um, you know, the degree to which we can, we can say, I mean, and I got to tread lightly here because I'm, I am an, in no way a climate denier, <laughs> but it's like, you know, absolutely we have these issues, but at the same time, you know, like, uh, the, there, the, the number of people that have, and an understanding of the statistical methodologies required to come to these conclusions are very, very few. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it's also obvious that this, uh, that science as it broaches, you know, as it moves into these areas that are deeply political and, uh, that, that touch on, um, you know, that human, human bias, you know, the, the, you know, our, our understanding of the world is largely shaped by the people that we know. And so there's a, there's a really profound, like I had this great conversation with Mirta Galasic for complexity podcast for SFI, um, where she talked about how, um, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, an objective ground truth and an effective social ground truth and how most of what we take to be a truth about the world is actually, uh, sort of an inherited story that we adhere to in order to maintain the of our social position, you know, that like if all of your friends are Trump voters, then you're, you're probably better off just agreeing with them than you are <laughs> trying to like risk your, you know, risk the security of your community that, that your community provides you by being a cantankerous pain in the ass and constantly going head to head with, your friends and family about this political issue. And so, you know, the, the extent to which this, the, we're, we're starting to learn over the last 50 years or so that the extent to which what we took to be for granted as facts about the world are in many cases, social or political truths that, um, and actually weirdly, the, the smarter you are, the more likely it is that you are going to try to find some clever way to, to, to uh, rationalize your own politically motivated illiteracy or innumeracy. So like we're in a really kind of sticky situation here where um, the most brilliant scientists are often the ones least willing to consider the possibility that they just believe something because it's beneficial to their career or to their family life or to their, you know, their political associations and so, you know, it's, it really, you know, again, it's like, we're, we're back at this, this really urgent need to take a more humble stance with what we think we know and to really like start from the assumption that we are probably wrong and probably lying to ourselves and to, and, you know, and to proceed from there, you know, and that, that, that really like, this is a sort of a kill the Buddha kind of a statement, you know, that like your authorities, and again, this is you know, probably the residue of my own life history and, and being disillusioned in my childhood role models and so on as an adult, realizing that all of us are flawed human beings, but your role models are probably wrong about yeah. a lot. 
you know, and, 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 you know, your religious leaders are probably wrong about a good, a good lot. And so, you know, like really, really, I think it falls upon us not to trust someone simply because we want to trust them, you know, whomever that might be. Very powerful. So, Michael, um, at the end, I always ask five questions. But um, before I ask those five questions, I would love to hear, like, um, what would be your your final words and all those different things that we've talked about today? Like, yeah, what what would you tell our listeners at this point in our conversation? Anything you want to highlight? Anything you want to summarize? Uh, anything that comes to mind right now? Anything you you've left out? I would say be curious. Uh, I, I think, you know, being um, that, I, you know, I feel that that fear and curiosity are um, an important balance to maintain. And I think that in general, our world uh, at this moment in history rewards fear or really, you know, is rewarded by your fear. Uh, more than by your curiosity and curiosity to maintain curiosity forever is, you know, to, to remain, to keep an open mind, to, to remain uh, unconvinced of your own beliefs um, is, is a truly, you know, difficult and, and lifelong uh, practice. I mean, this is essentially, you know, a Zen practice. Um, you are, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's costly, to remain uh, open-minded, uh, and and yet and there are, and there are also good reasons to to honor and to trust uh, your fears and to accept temporary working solutions to a problem, or um, you know to to accept that at some point you do have to make a decision about something to you know so so you know generally there's sort of like a meta curiosity about um, the mystery of our world and the open-ended nature of that mystery. And, uh, you know, I think that given, you know, given that we all live in a world that is changing as rapidly as it is, that that is perhaps the most responsible attitude that one can adopt. You know, we, we know that we're going to be lifelong learners. We know that the, the kind of work that we will be doing in 30 years probably does not resemble the kind of work that we're doing now. You know, I, I'm in a weird sense, you know, lucky that my life has thrown me that I've taken so many different kinds of, you know, that I've been so many different kinds of person over the last, you know, 20 years. Um, because I think it is, it has prepared me for a world that, you know, will be extremely difficult to predict, extremely turbulent, and yet extremely, for the same reasons, extremely uh, creative and full of uh, opportunity and possibility and, and delightful surprise. You know, I think it's like really, you know, most of us go through life kind of convinced that either something really wonderful is about to happen or something really horrible is about to happen. And, you know, if you can kind of remain at the balance point between those two things and, and you know, be really discerning but at the same time really um discerning about your own discernments you know and and to to um remember that you're not a closed system and that you are constantly uh undergoing 
some form or another of transformation, then that allows you to update your models and to um, to optimize in a in like a wise and responsible way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would just say you know stay curious, but um, you know don't uh, don't make the mistake of of following that curiosity off a bridge just because you're trying to remain open minded about the po- you know that that you might be able to fly or whatever you know it's there's, <laughs> there is a sweet spot and that sweet spot is con- is is dynamic in its stability. It's not always the same, you know, so you got to just feel it out. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, um, where can people, uh, read your work, uh, listen to your podcast, connect with you on the social webs and so on and so forth. I'm super easy to find on social media. My Twitter handle is Michael Garfield. Um, it's the same handle at medium where I have, you know, a, a ton of essays about evolution, creativity and, and psychology up there. Future fossils podcast is my own, complexity podcast which i highly recommend as the sort of more if you're gonna say more sober of the two in the kind of traditional sense um you know anchored much more uh concretely in in um you know rigorous quantitative research and and uh you know interviews with like world-leading scientists complexity podcast is really remarkable um i'm, I'm honored that i get to host that show as well uh, i'm on bandcamp spotify and all these other platforms as an avant guitarist and uh, songwriter. If you can imagine all of these ideas and, and this kind of thinking um, expressed musically um, or, you know, or, or artistically at michaelgarfieldart.com. Um, yeah. So I don't know, just, uh, you know, spin the wheel and, and land your, land your finger somewhere. And, and hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm remarkably accessible. So, um, you know, I'm a busy guy. Uh, you could probably hear the baby crying in the background this, of this call. Uh, but I, I really do my, my best to respond to email. Um, so, you know, feel free to email me, michaelgarfield at gmail. So, yeah. Got it. So um, the first out of the five quick question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? That's, I mean, that's... Imp- Uh, let me give you three books that I've read recently that Mm, I've deeply enjoyed. Um, one is blind sight by Peter Watts. Uh, it's a work of science fiction. Um, it's a first contact story. Uh, it takes place at the end of the 21st century. And, uh, the, the inquiries that he makes into the nature of mind and consciousness and, um, you know, whether this is actually a really great example, you know, his argument, um, about whether all the values that we have enshrined as human beings are really going to serve us or harm us as we move out into space and into a world that, that may have optimized for different evolutionary goals, uh, or, or, you know, adapted to a different evolutionary climate, I should say more accurately. Um, I found that to be a very, a a chilling and disturbing book, uh, but really beautifully written and, uh, really, you know, full of awesome, bizarre ideas. Um, I, I gave a talk on, uh, Richard Doyle's book, Darwin's pharmacy, sex plants and the evolution of the noosphere, um, at the chapel of sacred mirrors a couple of years ago. And if you look up, uh, the, my talk, uh, technologists of attention, 
then um, you can you can get a sense for why I so deeply admire uh, Richard Doyle's thoughts about the uh, the evolution of language and of human intelligence as a byproduct of our symbiotic relationships with the non-human world, you know, specifically our relationship to, to psychoactive plants and the role that, that, uh, psychoactive plants and non-ordinary states of consciousness may have had on, um, feats of communication that, influenced the game of sexual selection between, you know, proto proto human beings that, you know, art and music and so on may have emerged out of our attempts to communicate the impossible to communicate. And, um, it's a very, very eloquent, very dense and uh, very intelligent book that I recommend to anybody who's willing to, um, read that kind of, of rich academic cheesecake. Um, and then a third book, I would say, uh, third one that comes to mind. Well, you know, I mean, I'm really, I'm really, I'll give you another science fiction book. Um, this one is really astounding for being so far ahead of its time. Uh, but, but Olaf Stapledon's star maker, which was published in 1937 and was regarded as a primary influence of Isaac Asimov uh, and Arthur C. Clarke and a number of, you know, golden age science fiction authors, star maker is, is really, really a, you know, a profound sort of orders of magnitude zoom out where, you know, you start, you start the book in the, you know, the perspective of one guy and then the, the picture grows and grows and grows until you've encompassed the sort of iterative sequence of universes as, as, you know, the, um, the universe itself evolves in an attempt to perfect itself. And the fact that this was written in the 1930s is just completely bonkers. Um, it's, it's no wonder that, that this book was as influential as it was because I mean the book, the, the film powers of 10 didn't even come out until like 1972, you know? So like the fact that people that, you know, this is a perfect example of what historian William Irwin Thompson talks about how innovation, you know, cultural innovation starts in the crazies then moves to the artists, then the pedants, the scientific geniuses. I mean, sorry, the, sorry, the savants, the scientific geniuses, and then the pedants, the people who are just sort of living within that system of external authority, and you know, carrying out, you know, executing its own sort of uh, self-definition. So, like Olaf Stapledon, truly an an artist, uh, proceeding by decades, the this sort of view of the cosmos um, in a in a scientifically rigorous way. And, you know, really important book in terms of the history of, of science and scientific science fictional thinking. So, yeah. The second question is, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? You know, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, 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 and talk about television instead, because we're living <laughs> in a long form golden era right we're living in this this era where like really two hours three hours is not long enough to get an idea across uh, or to explore it in requisite depth and so you know for that reason you know i've i've deeply enjoyed over the last few years um westworld the television series that i you know i'm i i think is really at the head of its pack in terms of exploring issues of mind and and consciousness and 
our relationship to the machine, um, to, to, you know, created non-human intelligences. I think it's doing a far better job of exploring the, the complexities of this issue than almost anything out there, including, I mean, really, you know, most of the conversation around AI is just laughably bad. You know, Nick Bostrom's superintelligence is just not even internally coherent as a book. And, you know, I think, you know, most of the people that are getting most of the airtime talking about AI don't deserve it. You know, they, they really don't. Shots fired, I would say. Shots fired. Yeah. Elon <laughs> Musk, just stop. You know, like we, we, we listen, you know, and Ray Kurzweil. Oh, my God. I've spent most of my adult life critiquing the foolishness of this guy's position. Um, you know, not to say that he's not right about a lot of stuff, but like he's deeply wrong about some of the things that matter most. So Westworld, congratulations. What kind of things? Because I'm also familiar with, with Ray, so... Well, I mean, you know, just for example, um, to achieve technological immortality will require a, a you know, an, an even more complex and rapidly metamorphosing technological and social environment than the environment we're already in. So attempting to chase the immortality of the self through technological augmentation is going to lead us paradoxically into a condition of constant evolutionary adaptation un, 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 even like unimaginable right now that that it will you know that the kind of entity that will exist in that condition is not one that will re regard itself as a sort of permanent ray kurtzwheel it will be one that is you know essentially a different phase of matter you know that is like you know the it's like moving from a liquid to a gas or something you know that we're we will not be the same kind of beings that we are now. And it's, it's beyond sort of superficial differences in terms of our expansion of intelligence and so on. Like we aren't, we are not the kind, we don't understand the world or ourselves the same way we did it 2000 years ago. And we're still like relatively conserved in terms of our anatomy and our, you know, our, our physiology. So like the, the notion that we can somehow, you know, and like enter the singularity and stay who we are is as absurd as the notion that you can, you know, become an enlightened Buddha or whatever and still, you know, chase tail and watch TV all the time and like, you know, care about what people think about you. Like you will be a different thing. And so, you know, all of this techno immortalism, like obviously radical life extension, interesting, worth debating, probably, probably inevitable. That's a separate issue. The issue of, of this sort of Faustian attempts to pursue, um, a, you know, a godlike transcendent outcome for ourselves is, is just completely misguided about the way that the, the boundary uh, the volume of the unknown grows at a, you know, super linearly with the volume of the known, you know, and that, that what we're doing as, you know, as Kevin Kelly has said in his blog post about the expansion of ignorance is that as we learn more scientifically, we learn more about what we don't know. And we're actually, you know, science and spiritual, you know, tradition are converging on a sort of figure ground reversal 
where we're no longer, it's no longer about whether we can control the world, whether we can master to dominate the world, whether we can liberate ourselves from the conditions of our, our lives, but, um, about, you know, discovery sort of for its own sake, you know, as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a disciplined engagement with an ultimately unknowable mystery. And so, you know, like, absolutely, I'm not stepping on anybody's desire to, to grow beyond themselves, to, to, you know, to, to pursue the, you know, the solution to some of the, the most difficult and challenging problems of our world to try and, you know, to at least, you know, to try and end suffering in whatever way we can. But just to be aware that like the pursuit of utopia has been the number one cause of human suffering in history. You know, the pursuit of perfection, the pursuit of, of a control over, over a, you know, an ultimately ineffable cosmos is what has led to every religious war has led to every totalitarian totalitarian state and has, you know, it's, it's, it's absolute folly, you know, and, and it's, it's increasingly clear that, um, that we're just sort of recapitulating this mistake only with, you know, technologies that present to us, uh, existential risk, you know? So I just, you know, the fact that Ray Kurzweil wants to resurrect his his dead father makes the whole thing tragic. You know, it makes the whole thing like clearly this is about an unresolved, undigested psychological trauma. And it's not about, a, you know, again, like uh, a sober stance with reflect to the best that our our uh, investigations can offer us in terms of what what is actually available to us and, and, uh, you know, what, what it's possible to achieve and, and, um, how to go about doing so ethically. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. The third question is out of the five, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Hmm. That's an intro. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, um, <laughs> looking around here it, it it can also be an app or a service or yeah yeah i don't know i mean i'm um just you know for i would i don't know if it's useful per se but you know i'm i'm um deeply you know what actually the ipad mm. you know i think i feel like uh um, the new one or um i don't I, i've got a 2017 Oh, okay. You know, so, but I mean, it's <clears throat> the fact that it's, um, you know, I, I really care about handwriting in terms of, you know, that you, you remember things better if you take notes than if you type them out. Um, you know, I'm, I love, I've, I've always carried a sketchbook with me for my entire life. So, you know, to have, uh, apps like procreate and now fully featured Photoshop on the iPad, um, and, you know, that it's it's just, you know, unparalleled as a sort of musical creation sandbox. Um, the, you know, the the new uh, iPad OS, I find, you know, just totally intuitive and wonderful. I mean, it's I mean, there I'm sure there are better things that I could think to <laughs> suggest to people than, you know, some like high dollar, um, you know, 
product by a trillion dollar company. But I mean, I, I do think that there, that um, as our technology starts to evolve back into form factors that are compatible with the human being, with like, you know, the way that we actually think and use our bodies to think, um, the more this will feel uh, like there is a seamless continuity between thought and deed. And, um, you know, so to, to that extent, you know, I'm, I'm really, I won't say like the stuff I've recently purchased, but I am extremely pumped and have been since I was a glass explorer in, in 2013 about the potential for augmented reality and, and, you know, to bring um, AI augmentation like Google Lens into our sort of, um, you know, just sort of our natural way of relating to the world, you know, to look at something and to know about it um, automatically, to be given, you know, th these the, the, the evolution of new senses that, you know, will be natural to my, my daughter, you know, in her, you know, in 20, 30 years when she's an adult. Um, that's the stuff that excites me most, you know, and everything else lately, you know, like almost everything I, I observe as far as like consumer products and services is, is like, you know, an interesting iterative improvement on what is, but I'm not going to recommend that people go out and buy anything. I'm just not, because I feel like the, the majority of the work that, uh, is, you know, before us is, is work of, deepening our attention and deepening our ability to pay attention, uh, to, to, um, inquire into the, our own blind spots to recognize and to, to work around our own cognitive biases. And I think, you know, all of that, it, you know, th those techniques, um, are not for sale. I mean, when, when they are, it's not necessary to acquire them in that way, you know? So like, just, you know, don't, God. don't go buy things. Just stop <laughs> yeah. The voice out of the five question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years or that come to mind right now? I think, um, so I, on, on my Patreon, um, I have a record, like not the recording itself, but notes from a talk that I gave at the Santa Fe Institute back in this February. And it was about, you know, a, a, a broad review of the literature and evolutionary theory, uh, including a paper by uh, Israeli theorist uh, Adi Livnat at Haifa University called, um, I want to say it was like, it was uh, interaction-based evolution, simplification and the, the uh, absorption of meaning from environment. And, you know, he was basically making an argument that complex behaviors become innate, become instinctual through the um, simplification of gene regulatory networks as they are, as different genes are concurrently expressed through behavior. So there's like epigenetics actually feeds back into the way that our genes are organized chromosomally. And leads to um, a kind of evolutionary learning that uh, we disregarded as, you know, that it was essentially like Lamarckism, um, where 
you know, the, the, the body learns things over the course of its lifespan and that those things are transmitted, uh, through inheritance. And this was, you know, completely shut out of the, uh, the evolutionary conversation for almost a century. But, um, I mean, even Darwin thought that, that Lamarck had something, you know, and he did not regard their ideas as mutually exclusive. And, um, you know, now we have, we have this model, um, you know, pushed, uh, by live not. And, um, in, in which, uh, our genes are not g- genetic mutation isn't really random, but it is an instance of this kind of, um, trend towards finding the, the, the sort of minimal adequate model of reality, um, of the, the evolutionary adaptive landscape that resembles, uh, like fire together, wire together, mm. um, heavy in learning in the brain. It resembles, uh, the way that our deep neural networks operate, um, the way that they learn. Um, and, uh, and it looks for all the world, like basically what we've been calling random mutation is in some sense, a very basic form of intelligence that is not, that is only random because it's operating below the, the resolvability threshold of our, of our models, that it looks like a stochastic process. Um, but that in, what is actually going on is that evolution is operating. Natural selection is operating on every scale at all times. And that when a random mutation, so-called random mutation occurs, that's deleterious to the organism that's fitness, you know, decreasing, it's not because it's random and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's because it was adapting to a local environment that turned out to be, um, ill, ill-equipped to manage the complexity of the larger environment the organism actually lives in, you know? So like your body can adjust to a lifetime of whatever, like cigarette smoking in certain ways. But, um, you know, just because your lungs are doing one thing doesn't mean that that's actually, you know, going to work for the rest of your body. So at any rate, like this is, this is a profound paradigmatic challenge to the way that we're thinking about randomness right now. Um, and the way that we're thinking about evolution and the way that we're thinking about intelligence. And so if you look up, uh, toward an, toward a new evolutionary paradigm, uh, Patreon, Michael Garfield, this, this is a free thing. It's, it's, it's publicly available. And there are, um, that's one paper in a mind map that I made of like several dozen papers that I think, um, start to trace out the shape of a new way of thinking about evolutionary biology that um, is equally applicable to organic and technological evolution. And um, yeah, I mean, I just f- feedback totally welcome. Um, but I think that we're, I think we're starting to recognize that we're, we're deeply wrong about um, some of our sort of dismissive conclusions about what's really going on in evolution. And um yeah the last question for the day is what would you tell your 20 year old self take the phd fellowship um i i i i i uh i declined the opportunity to uh put together my own phd program at the university of kansas because I wanted to pursue a question that was so broad and so multidisciplinary 
that I would have had to bring together advisors from like half a dozen different academic departments and then teach them how to speak to each other. And it didn't seem fair to me. Like I, um, like I should be responsible for taking such an active role in my education at the time. I really wanted expert authorities to, to like hold my hand and guide me through this process of learning. And knowing what I know now, I think that it would have been a, a profound challenge, um, as a, you know, a serious, difficult undertaking. But I think that I would have, um, perhaps created better opportunities for myself pursuing an ongoing education, uh, you know, pursuing uh, a PhD and, in you know, a really, um, progressive domain um rather than and i would have been far more supported in that than i would have been trying to pursue this kind of research without institutional support um and and i think that you know i just didn't want to have to make the trade-off i didn't want to have to play the play by the rules um to to work within what seemed at the time like a very limiting and constrictive system and i think you know especially now uh, there's far greater opportunity for people to pursue these enormous questions uh, within the university world. Um, but even then, I think, really, I just was feeling so discouraged by people suggesting that I wasn't going to be able to handle this kind of a problem that I would that I would meet active resistance from from you know my my academic superiors, um, and that. You know that I was pursuing an, an area of you know a theory that that was you know contrary to uh, you know the status quo basically, and I think that that's you know that that's what you're going to hear if you're going to pursue something really innovative and and really you know envelope pushing, and really like I should have taken those I should have taken that discouragement as a sign that I was on the right track. You know, and that that I'm 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 doing what I should be. Um, so yeah, you know, stay in school. I don't know. <laughs> Michael, um, thank you so much for for being on the show, uh, sharing your advice with us, sharing your story and your thoughts. And uh, yeah, thank you for the episode. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good one. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out. <laughs>